This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Before I start this one, I have to apologize in advance for any extra noise my mic picks up. It's not currently 3 a.m., which is when I usually record, so there is a good chance you'll hear some car noises or my washer or my fat-ass husky wandering around upstairs. I'll do my best to edit that out, but just be forewarned. Here we are in yet another Midwest state that starts with I. Slipknot wrote a song about it. Or maybe it's about something else entirely. I don't know. I can't fucking stand Slipknot. Why do you need nine people in a band? I know of many one-man metal bands, mostly from Russia, that produce way better music than this group of nine could ever dream of. Iowa was the 29th state to enter the Union, and as you can probably guess, it's known for agriculture. From what I gather, it's basically the small town of the USA. They have cheaper housing, high graduation rates, and oddly enough, more golf courses per capita than anywhere else in the country. I didn't see that one coming at all. If you look past all the fucked up crimes that have taken place here, it seems like a pretty nice place to live. A quick search led me to a list of Iowa Department of Corrections news briefings, and there were three this month, August 2023, about inmates escaping from work release programs, as well as one about them capturing another escaped convict. Do y'all not know how to wrangle your inmates? As far as the death penalty goes, I was surprised to see that they abolished it in 1965. Since then, one federal execution has taken place here. Everyone put to death in Iowa was hanged except the last one. I guess electrocution never caught on here. Normally right now I'd tell you to pack something relevant to this state because we're going on a trip. But this time... Grab a Game Boy or whatever it is you kids have these days to keep yourselves entertained. You're gonna need it. Iowa is boring as hell. Look at me showing my age at Game Boy. Jesus Christ. Remember back in Illinois when I said they had a lot of double and triple executions? Well, Iowa has a lot of condemned men who were convicted in multiple states. Even the criminals want to get the fuck out of here. Must not be a lot to do. I apologize to anyone from Iowa who may be listening. You're probably lovely people, but you guys make me feel like I come from a big city, and that's just... no. Have you ever had a friend who's just a bad influence, always getting you into trouble? Maybe convincing you to cut class or steal a bottle of whiskey out of your parents' stash and replace it with water? It's me. I'm that friend. I'm not unique in that sense, though. Many people are bad influences. The first case I'm going to tell you about is a story of just that. Two drinking buddies who decided to fuck some shit up. Back before I got old and fat and had a family to take care of, I was a party animal. My friend Twitch, who I'm still friends with to this day, once got so shit-faced that he puked in my bathroom sink and tried to clean it up with toilet paper before telling me, it wasn't me, it was those tweaker assholes, I'm asleep. That's a pretty mild one. 
but just know I'm no stranger to the realm of drunken blackouts. Love you, Twitch. I'm glad to have you in my life, even back when you were puking in my sink. Charles Brown was born in Indiana and had a rough upbringing. His father was a consistently absent alcoholic, and because of this, he dropped out of school after 8th grade to help support his family. At 16, he was forced into a marriage that produced four children. He'd later do prison time for forgery. That's about all there is on this guy. It's a story we've all heard a million times before. In his 20s, he'd start working as a parking lot attendant in Minnesota and meet a man named Charles Kelly. This friendship was based on a sturdy foundation of alcohol and bad decisions, like most good friendships are. Trust me on that one. There's not much available on Charles Kelly. He volunteered for the Marines when he was 17, but was discharged after less than three weeks after having a grand mal seizure. Turns out, Kelly was epileptic. He stopped taking his medication after a year. Apparently, seizures are better than whatever horrible side effects came with the 1950s drugs used to treat them. On an unspecified date, Kelly robbed a gas station with a screwdriver. That's a new one. Brown would use the money gained from this to buy two handguns. This would be where things began to spiral out of control. On February 18, 1961, the men robbed a gas station in Minnesota. The 17-year-old attendant who was working that night, James Peterson, was shot three times. Two of those hit him in the head, and the last one hit a button on his shirt and was deflected away from his heart. Somehow, James survived this. He was in a coma for a few days before waking up and talking to the police. Unfortunately, though, he slipped back into unconsciousness and remained in critical condition for over a month. Comas are a weird fucking phenomenon. My dad was in a motorcycle accident when I was a kid that should have killed him. I think I mentioned this in another episode. They told us he had a 2% chance of survival. That motherfucker pulled through somehow after being in a coma for two weeks. He's a completely different person and can't remember what happened 15 seconds ago, but he lived. James ultimately survived being shot twice in the head and lived to tell his tale until 2007 when complications from these injuries finally took him out. The human body is incredibly resilient. Two days after this first murder, the Mad Dog Killers, as they came to be known, would strike again. They robbed a tavern in Minneapolis and shot 52-year-old Harold Trowbridge to death. Harold was the owner of the tavern. During this robbery, the pair also shot the bartender, George Koch, six times. Thankfully, he pulled through and survived. After this crime, the men took a bus to Nebraska. While in Omaha, the men robbed a liquor store and shot the owner, 60-year-old Harry Goldberg. According to Brown, he took this old man into the rear room and told him to turn around. He didn't do as I asked, so I shot him with my gun. This cross-country adventure wasn't over yet. Brown and Kelly took a taxi to Council Bluffs, Iowa. I'm not up to date on my geography, but that's gotta be an expensive cab ride. But then again, I'm from a place where you have to drive at least two hours to be anywhere near a state line. The plan was to steal a car in Council Bluffs and make their escape from there. This plan came to fruition when they carjacked 54-year-old Alvin Carson. 
Not sure if I have that name right, but your guess is as good as mine on that one. Alvin was ordered to drive at gunpoint. The group only made it a few blocks before the car pulled over and Alvin was shot seven times. Brown and Kelly dumped him in the road and tried to drive off in his car. Unfortunately for them, they couldn't get the car to start and had to escape on foot. About 20 minutes later, they found themselves in a parking lot and accosted a man named Kenneth Bensell. After being threatened with a gun, Kenneth ran away. He was shot once in the stomach and twice in the back. He survived these injuries. Alvin Carson died from his injuries two days later. It is very clear to me that these men have no regard for human life. All they care about is themselves. They stole Kenneth's car and headed north, but only made it as far as Missouri Valley, Iowa before their car broke down. They then jumped on a bus headed to Kansas City, Missouri. Okay, what the fuck is up with the Midwest? This is confusing as hell. <laughs> anyway, at the bus station, the men drew the suspicion of a ticket manager who ended up calling the cops. They were arrested in Council Bluffs and each charged with armed robbery and first-degree murder. Brown's trial came first. The prosecution had their work cut out for him. Brown didn't even try to justify his actions or deny his guilt. It was an easy win. He was convicted on both counts. Kelly went a different route and tried an insanity defense. It was thrown out very quickly. He was also convicted of both charges, despite having a much stronger defense than Brown. The sentencing phases of these trials went about like you'd expect. Brown testified that he had a drinking problem. He'd started dancing with the booze demon when he was 10 or 11 and had been drinking heavily during his crime spree. Alcohol is a motherfucker, I'm not gonna deny that, but in all my years of binges and blackouts, I've never robbed or murdered anyone. I pissed my pants once. That ain't a crime, but it was definitely embarrassing. Drinking to excess is not an excuse to do fucked up things. Order a pizza, eat the whole thing, puke it up, and go pass out. Stop murdering people, you fucking idiots. Brown's jury asked the judge if he'd get a chance of parole with a life sentence, and how long he'd have to serve before he was eligible. Apparently in Iowa, all life sentences are without parole, so they're at least doing something right. The judge advised the jury that they could make any recommendation they wanted with their verdict, and instructed them to write it down and return it with the verdict. Brown's uncle was hopeful that they'd spare his life, but that wasn't the case. After 14 hours of deliberation, they came back with a recommendation for a death sentence. Brown wasn't bothered at all by this. He said, I knew this was coming. I don't care. The only thing I feel bad for is my folks. Kelly's sentencing hearing was a fucking disaster in comparison to Brown's. He tried to use his epilepsy as a mitigating factor, but this didn't do much for him. A psychiatrist who examined him said he had a sociopathic personality and found no evidence of a psychotic reaction which would indicate that Mr. Kelly is not responsible for his acts. Kelly's age was also brought up. At just 20 years old, he'd be one of the youngest people executed in Iowa. The jury deliberated for over 48 hours before they deadlocked. They knew he was guilty, but a handful of jurors couldn't agree to hang him for his crimes. The jury foreman later said, I couldn't ask for hanging when there were small doubts in my mind whether the killing was premeditated, whether Kelly altogether was a mentally sound person, and how much influence the older man had on him. 
Kelly's fate was in the hands of the judge. In an attempt to get leniency, Kelly decided to plead guilty when he was tried the second time. Judge Leroy H. Johnson would tell the court he needed two weeks to make his decision. On June 7, 1961, Kelly was sentenced to death. Charles Noel Brown was executed by hanging on July 24, 1962. All appeals failed him, and the governor refused to grant him clemency. I have to side with the state on this one. Alcoholic or not, this dude didn't give a shit about other people and had no problem ending their lives to get what he wanted. You can't blame your shitty decisions on your addiction. A drunk mouth speaks a sober mind. I'm sure the same thing applies to a drunk trigger finger. As Brown was led up to the gallows, he said, he hoped that the people will forgive me for what I've done. His last words before the trap door opened were, God forgive me. His last meal was steak, fries, and strawberry shortcake. Charles Edwin Kelly was executed by hanging on September 6, 1962. He was just 21 when he died. Kenneth Bensell, who you'll remember was shot three times and survived, was there to witness his execution. A bullet was still lodged near his spine. I'm pretty happy to be here today. He's got it coming to him. At least they got a trial. The other fellow shot by Kelly and Brown didn't get one. Kelly's last words were, I'm sorry what I did. Oddly enough, I can't find anything on his last meal. Iowa is known for farmland. I don't think I need to tell you that. You probably have the same vision of Iowa as I do. A vast, open cornfield. That's all the Midwest is. Farm life isn't easy. I'm not a manual labor person, obviously. But some people make their living off the land that's been in their family for decades. Dale Burr was one of those people. He was a 63-year-old man living on 560 acres in Lone Tree, Iowa with his wife, Emily. The couple was in financial hell. The agricultural economy crisis going on in 1985 was putting an insane amount of stress on them. Their farm was too much to handle. The Burrs were more than half a million dollars in debt. Banks were closing, property was being foreclosed on, people were struggling. Dale and Emily had been married for 40 years fighting through this shit together. I know all too well how taxing stress can be on a marriage. Some couples make it out stronger, some marriages fail, and in a few rare cases, someone snaps and destroys everything they've built. On the morning of December 9th, 1985, Emily was in the kitchen baking cookies. Her husband came upstairs with his 12-gauge shotgun and blasted her in the chest. Before I go any further, I just have to say, the shit I've gone through with my husband would probably kill most people, but we made it out, and neither of us shot anyone. Granted, we aren't $500,000 in debt, but still. After callously murdering his wife, Burr jumped in his truck and headed down to Hills Bank and Trust Company, which was the bank that held his mortgage. The bank's president, 46-year-old John Hughes, was sitting at his desk when Burr came in and shot him in the head. Probably didn't even see it coming. Unfortunately, Burr's rampage wasn't over just yet. 
Richard Goody was a 37-year-old farmer who had previously gotten into a land dispute with Burr. He was at home with his family when Burr showed up and shot him. Thankfully, Richard's wife and six-year-old son escaped unharmed, narrowly dodging Burr's shotgun blasts. On the way back to his farm, Burr was stopped by a sheriff's deputy. Why all the violence? Some would argue that it was just the financial turmoil this aging man found himself in, but that's only a half-assed explanation for killing one of his victims. Why his wife? Why this other farmer? Situations like this make me think of a man named Marvin Hemeyer. Those who know his story may know him as Killdozer. He was a man in a similar situation, who took his revenge out on those who deserved it, and didn't kill anyone but himself. Count Dankula does a fucking great video about him, and I'll link it in the description. Killdozer is a legend to some. The local government destroyed his livelihood, so he destroyed their city. He didn't go on a shooting spree or harm innocent people, but he made his point. According to Burr's brother-in-law, Keith Forbes, something was amiss the last time he talked to Burr. The man had showed up to his house unannounced. Not to ask for help hauling in the rest of the crops in his field, or to pay back the ten grand he owed Keith for pesticides and fertilizer, or even just for a visit with his sister and her family. He and Emily knocked at the door, looking absolutely defeated, and told the Forbes family that the bank had them against a wall and they couldn't see a way out. Johnson County, Iowa, hadn't been nearly as hard hit during this depression as other areas in the Midwest. This was due in part to John Hughes, the banker Burr would later kill. John P. Burr was Dale's grandfather. He'd been given the honorary title of president of the bank in Lone Tree, and it was known in the community that the Burr family was pretty well off. Dale's father, Vernon, was an honorary vice president of the bank and spread their wealth around by buying cheap land during the Great Depression. Dale's son, John, still lived at home, despite being in his late 30s and was being brought into the family business. A 40-acre parcel of land had been purchased for him to get started in 1977, and more land was added to it as the years went on. This land included where Richard Goody had been a tenant. So how did this well-off family with more land than I could ever dream of owning end up in such a mess? Their mortgages, yeah, there was more than one, total almost $425,000. This was on top of forty-eight dollars Burr had borrowed from his mother, the liens totaling about fifty-two dollars against Dale and John, and the overdue property tax payments. Burr had tried to get the bank to take their boot off his neck by giving the Agricultural Stabilization and Conservation Service 9,000 bushels of corn in exchange for a $20,000 loan he was going to use to pay off his lien and property taxes. The ASCS made a mistake when writing the check and Burr was unable to pay his debts. He was expecting the bank to foreclose on him before the week ended. On the day of the murders, Burr left a note at the back of his house. It read, I'm sorry, I can't take the problems anymore. Dale Burr executed himself by two gunshot wounds to the chest on December 9, 1985. I'd like to take this moment to remind you all that if you're planning a murder-suicide, you should start with the suicide. I'd prefer that no one lose their life, 
But taking out innocent people because you find yourself stuck in a shitty situation is not the way to handle things. The farm foreclosures of the 80s caused a lot of harm in the Midwest. Dale Burr wasn't the only man who was tired of the bank being up his ass. Many others considered violence, but thankfully didn't follow through. You can't kill the government entities who cause you stress. The best thing you can do to make your point is weld yourself into a bulldozer and damage the ever-loving fuck out of their property. That's obviously a joke. I'm not advocating for any kind of violence or vandalism. Farmers are tough, so it's clear to me that the stress Burr was under was immense. Doesn't excuse his actions, but it makes it a little easier to understand. It's a damn shame he had to take three innocent people with him when he died. There is no information available on his last words or his last meal. Obviously, he suicided. I just got back from my visit with my kids. It would be impossible for me to explain the melancholy I feel. I visited with them, my mother, and my sister the last couple of days. The whole while I was talking with my kids, I felt this great crushing weight of despair upon me for failing them so. I was so utterly disgusted with myself this morning for being such a failure that it took every single ounce of my will just to move. I am so sick with myself for letting them down that I wish myself non-existent. I can't think of no other point in my life where I have been so troubled as I have been over this past month. A tide of contempt for myself has assailed me for many days now. I have realized my unrivaled genius for throwing my life away. Perhaps it is the only thing I have ever been good at. I do not write for pity. I write to shame what is left of myself. With every fiber, I have wished to start anew, to turn right instead of left. But the past is immutable, and madness counts those that dwell too long there. I can say with the utter sincerity of a broken and humbled man that I deeply regret every single transgression I have ever done in my life, no matter how small. When those people finally get around to killing me, they'll realize only the shell of me remains, the heart of me died long ago. That is an online journal entry written by the guilty party in this next case. The date is listed as August 3rd, 2006. When I talk about women who have either been executed or sentenced to death, their crime usually has to do with killing their husband or their kids. Rarely is it anything else. During my research for this episode, I kept coming across a specific case of a woman and her boyfriend committing a crime that still has me scratching my head. Dustin Honkin was born in Britt, Iowa on March 22, 1968, to a mother he would later describe as perfect and a father who put his own alcoholism before his son. According to Honkin, his father struck him on several occasions and neglected him. But wait, there's more. Like most drunk con artists, Jim Honkin convinced his son to steal the key to a bank and make a copy of it so that he could use it to rob the banks. Jim managed to do this twice before getting caught and serving time in federal prison. When little Dustin was just nine, his parents divorced. His mom would go on to remarry, and her son would finally get a proper father figure in his life. Honkin was a smart kid, and despite having a rocky start in life, went on to earn a scholarship to North Iowa Area Community College. His plan was to become a pharmaceutical lawyer. It's funny how life turns out. 
Honkin met a woman named Angela Johnson in the early 90s. She had been raised in Forest City, Iowa by her extremely religious grandparents who would often speak in tongues and wave Bibles over her head in an attempt to exorcise the demons from the girl. Johnson's mother was an abusive alcoholic, so she didn't really have anywhere else to go. It was revealed in court that she had been molested as a child. Johnson kept herself together long enough to get married and have a child, but that marriage eventually ended and she found herself on a path to destruction. Like a lot of college students do, Honkins started selling weed and cocaine. He did pretty well in his academic ventures, though. I'm kind of surprised. He finished out a year of chemistry classes with an A-. minus. Rather than continue on the straight and narrow path of just selling drugs to get through school with some cash in his pocket, he decided to start manufacturing as well. Fuck it, right? Use that chemistry knowledge for something productive. That's the American dream. Honkin decided to switch to meth at this point. I don't know much about the manufacturing of methamphetamine, but I'm assuming it's probably pretty easy to do, considering how much of it is destroying this country. The world needs less meth and more MDMA if you ask me, but what the hell do I know? Funkin conned his best friend Tim into moving to Arizona with him before they borrowed $5,000 from his brother to buy equipment for their meth lab. It only took a year for the pair to produce several pounds of meth. They made their way back to Iowa to sell their nearly pure product. Of course, wouldn't be the Midwest without some methed up shenanigans. Two drug dealers were involved with Honkin and Tim. Their names were Terry DeGoose and Greg Nicholson. These drug runs brought the men a substantial amount of money. It was on one of these runs that Honkin would meet Angela Johnson, who was dating Terry DeGoose. Johnson became friendly with Honkin and later told him that Terry was using too much of the meth that was supposed to be sold and that he should drop Terry as a dealer and let her take over. It didn't take long for the two to become romantically involved. Johnson became pregnant with Honkin's child very soon after this. Though it made quite a bit of money, Honkin wasn't satisfied with his small-time meth dealings in Iowa. He wanted to expand his business. He was an entrepreneur, after all. Honkin studied chemistry textbooks at the library and read science journals. He kept extremely detailed records of everything, and even thought about writing a book on how to manufacture and sell meth. This guy is going places. Prison is a place, though, keep that in mind. Honkin's dreams of becoming Walter White were shattered in March of 1993 when he and Tim were arrested on federal drug trafficking charges. While preparing to go to trial, Honkin went through some legal documents and found out that Greg Nicholson had become a witness for the state. The cops had raided his house and found almost 150 grams of pure meth. Not wanting to rot in a cage for the rest of his life, he agreed to become an informant if they lessened his sentence. He had worn a wire and sat in on Honkin making a deal with someone to sell $3,000 worth of meth. Greg became very paranoid after this. It got so bad that he wouldn't let his wife go outside or linger by any windows. Shortly after Greg was arrested, his wife left. Honkin planned on pleading guilty on the trafficking charges. At least that's what he told his lawyers. A hearing was scheduled for July 30th, 1993. I was honestly shocked to see that they let Honkin out on bond while he was awaiting trial. 
I thought this was back in a time when the war on drugs was going on, but maybe I'm not up to date on my history. They should have kept him locked up. Would have saved a lot of people a lot of pain. Armed with the knowledge that Greg had snitched on him, Honkin enlisted the help of Angela Johnson to locate him and exact some revenge. Johnson purchased a gun on July 7, 1993, probably just to have, in case she needed to defend herself. She doesn't strike me as the violent type, not at all. That's sarcasm in case my audio is distorted and you can't tell. A little more than two weeks later, Johnson went to Greg's house and pretended to be a lost saleswoman in order to gain access. She and Honkin forced their way inside and tied Greg up before making him record a new statement claiming that Honkin was innocent. They could have left it there, but they didn't. After getting this new statement from Greg, they rounded up his new girlfriend, Lori Ann Duncan, and her two kids, 10-year-old Candace and 6-year-old Amber. All of them were bound and gagged and told that they'd be going on a surprise trip. The family was forced into a car at gunpoint and driven out to a wooded area outside the city. Honkin got the adults out of the car and walked them into the woods to a location where he had already dug a shallow grave. They were shot execution style. And then, because this makes total fucking sense, he did the same thing to Lori's daughters. These girls didn't know him and couldn't identify him. There was no reason to kill them, but he did. I am at a loss for words. On July 30th, the day of the court hearing, Honkin gave Greg's new statement to his attorneys and told them he was changing his plea to not guilty. Because Greg was now missing, the state turned to Terry DeGoose to get information on Honkin. This caused Honkin to become paranoid yet again. It's hard enough to trust someone who used to sell meth for you. It's got to be even worse when you also stole their girlfriend. On November 9th, 1993, Terry DeGoose disappeared. The night before, he had dropped his 10-year-old daughter off with her grandma and said that he was going to meet up with Angela Johnson. She lured him to a country club by telling him that she wanted to rekindle their relationship and then took him to an abandoned house where Honkin was waiting. Terry was beaten and shot by Honkin before being buried. Because the state no longer had any witnesses, they had to drop the trafficking charges against Honkin. Shortly after Terry's murder, Honkin went to find his friend Tim and told him that he needed to destroy a pistol. They used a blowtorch to melt the gun down and break it into multiple pieces. Its final resting place was a ditch on the side of a country road. Honkin managed to get away with his murderous actions for a few years. In the fall of 1995, he became involved with a man named Dan Cobain and started making meth again. What he didn't know, but probably should have assumed, was that Dan had become a police informant. A search warrant was served on Honkin's house on February 7, 1996. The police discovered all kinds of fun things, including a meth lab, books, chemicals, and other equipment. They also found notes about how to manufacture drugs and effectively tie people up. Tim and Honkin were arrested on federal drug trafficking charges. Again. While he was awaiting trial, he was released on bond. Again. Yep. Despite their witnesses in the other case mysteriously disappearing while Honkin was out on bond, they let the motherfucker out again. And as you probably guessed, 
Honkin planned to murder Dan Cobain, as well as a few other people, to destroy the evidence against him. Honkin's friend Tim had been loyal to him through this whole thing, but due to some probably meth-fueled paranoia, he became suspicious that Honkin had killed Greg Nicholson and was worried that he would be implicated or blamed for the murder, so he became an informant. While they were out on bond, Tim wore a wire and had a conversation with Honkin about his plans to kill other witnesses. Dustin Honkin doesn't know how to keep his fucking mouth shut, apparently, because he also mentioned that he had killed other witnesses in 1993. In true psychopath fashion, he compared the feeling of killing someone to a football game, saying, Once you go a certain distance, there ain't no turning back. Tim asked if killing people bothered him, and he replied, Nope, never think about it, never dream about it, never nothing. Thought I'd have nightmares. Honkin was also recorded calling Dan Cobain a rat and saying that he'd kill him no matter what. I've climbed far bigger hills than this little hill, even if I'm in prison for 15 years, whatever. When I'm out, he's still dead. Tim expressed concern over the murders and Honkin said that Dan had forced his hand. They made me choose between my family and them. I'm sorry, but that ain't no choice. Now I know drug laws are insane and there's always a mandatory minimum, even when there's no violence committed, but I'm pretty sure drug trafficking carries less time than murder. I know for sure that trafficking doesn't get you the needle. Honkin's bond was revoked, obviously. While he was in prison, he told other inmates that he had killed witnesses from an earlier case. Dude apparently never learned how to shut the fuck up. But that isn't the only stupid decision Dustin Honkin made while he was in prison. He and another inmate conspired to escape by breaking a hole in the wall and having Angela Johnson bring them a hacksaw and a rope. They were found out before they could put their plan into action. For his cooperation, Tim got a light sentence of four and a half years. Honkin pled guilty to attempting to distribute meth and conspiring to manufacture and distribute meth. He was looking at a minimum of 10 years. His lawyer asked for 10 to 15 and criticized the government's handling of the case. He also brought up that Honkin was still young and could be rehabilitated. The prosecution went at him full force, asking for a life sentence and bringing up that he more than likely had something to do with the disappearances of Greg, Lori, Candace, Amber, and Terry. It appears these people are dead. We believe the defendant was involved in this. We believe that he was ready to take violent actions again. The maximum sentence sends a message to this defendant and other defendants who are thinking about taking things into their own hands that that conduct is unacceptable. Judge Mark Bennett weighed the aggravating and mitigating factors, but refused to rule on whether Honkin had any involvement in the 1993 disappearances. Honkin's offense level was set at 38 based on the U.S. federal sentencing guidelines, which apparently range from 1 to 43. There is a very complicated point system that I don't care to explain in detail, as it would bore you to tears, but whatever. Because his offense level was 38, he got a maximum sentence of 24 and a half years. In addition to this, he was ordered to serve five years of supervised release and pay an $1,100 fine. Honkin seemed disappointed when he received his sentence. He even apologized, saying, I wasn't expecting things to go this way. I let down my family, my children most of all. 
I wish there was some way to go back and start over, but obviously there isn't. In a strange turn of events, the prosecution appealed Honkin's sentencing deduction. An appellate court agreed with them and added that one can easily conclude from witnesses' testimony that appellee caused the disappearance of one or more persons, including prospective prosecution witnesses, in 1993. Without the deduction, Honkin was looking at 27 to 34 years. They gave him a resentencing hearing, and in January 2000, Honkin asked for leniency telling the judge that he had participated in a drug rehab program and furthered his education while in prison. He also claimed that he didn't have any involvement in the 1993 disappearances. For years now, the government has made these terrible accusations against me. I didn't kill anyone, and even though that hasn't been proven, the accusations have repeatedly been used against me. I realize I am here because of my own actions. I am sorry for what I have done, but I haven't done these heinous crimes the government accuses me of. I have seen people get murdered here, and being in a place like this makes the sentence I have now almost like a death sentence. Murderous sociopath or not, the man has a point. They hadn't proven his guilt. Being someone who has seen the state throw false allegations on someone firsthand, I have to take his side on this specific point. Prove him guilty before you start running your fucking mouth. Judge Bennett resentenced Honkin to 27 years, saying that the minimum sentence was harsh enough. In reference to the disappearances, Bennett said that the government made a compelling case for Honkin being responsible, but if they believed he was a murderer, they should charge him with murder. Wow, a judge that isn't a total idiot. I am kinda surprised. Honkin wasn't gonna stay in prison quietly. He and other inmates plotted another escape, going so far as to practice retrieving an officer's weapon removing handcuffs with minimal tools, and training in martial arts to try to take someone out during an armed escort. Later on in 2000, a friend of Angela Johnson named Christy Gaubatz finally decided to talk to the cops about what she knew. She had been aware of Johnson and Honkin trying to find Greg Nicholson and had also seen the pistol they used in the murders. In July of 2000, Johnson was charged with five counts of murder in furtherance of a continuing criminal enterprise. While awaiting trial, she met a man named Robert McNeese in the jail. He was a career criminal turned informant and convinced Johnson to confess to her role in the murders so he could find another inmate to take the blame. The only catch was that Johnson had to tell him everything she knew. Robert wore a wire and got her to confess to everything and even managed to get a map from Johnson that showed where the bodies were. When she found out she'd been tricked, Johnson tried to hang herself. Honkin wouldn't be charged with the murders until 2001. The court found that Honkin was an extreme security risk and ordered that he wear a stun belt, whatever the hell that is, and be shackled and bolted to the floor during his trial. To not prejudice the jury, the tables were covered so that his confinement wouldn't be as obvious. His trial began in October of 2004. Honkin's lawyers claimed that there was no physical evidence linking him to the murders, but the state countered this with the testimony of 65 witnesses and the recordings of Honkin telling other inmates about his role in the crimes. Honkin was convicted on all 17 counts against him. The prosecution described him as an evil mastermind and said he deserved to die since he had committed mass murder, killed children, showed no remorse, kept trying to escape from prison, 
and had committed a second murder just months after the first ones. The only mitigating evidence the defense presented was Honkin's age and lack of prior violent convictions. The jury recommended life sentences for the murders of the adult victims and death sentences for the murders of the kids. He was formally sentenced to death on October 11, 2005. Johnson went to trial in 2005. The prosecution in her case was seeking the death penalty because she willingly participated in the murder of the children and lacked remorse for her actions. Her defense attorneys brought up her dysfunctional childhood and claimed that she didn't know Honkin was going to kill anyone. Was she expecting to go out in the woods and have a picnic? What the fuck? Johnson admitted to her role in the crimes, but blamed her boyfriend for committing the murders and said he had manipulated her. A jury found her deserving of four death sentences, which surprises me only because women never get harsher sentences than men. Honkin only got two, and she got four. During her sentencing hearing, Johnson kept blaming Honkin and said, I regret I wasn't strong enough. She called him a sociopath who will never admit to what he's done. Well, at least she's right about something. Angela Jane Johnson had her death sentence vacated in March of 2012. Judge Mark Bennett cited her defense team's failure to introduce evidence about her mental state. Two years later, federal prosecutors announced that they wouldn't be seeking the death penalty against her a second time. According to Johnson's lawyers, she was relieved and happy to accept the sentence of life without parole. She had made an agreement with the prosecution in which she said she would drop all of her appeals. She's currently serving her sentence at a federal correctional institution in Minnesota. I wasn't lying to you when I said women get off easier than men. It's disgusting. Dustin Lee Honkin was executed by lethal injection on July 17, 2020. He was the first Iowan to be put to death in an Iowa case since 1962. Unfortunately for Honkin, he fucked around with the federal government, and they made sure he found out. The moral of this story is simple. Don't do meth. Don't sell meth. Don't hang around with tweakers. And don't talk to the feds. Honkin's last words were used to recite a short poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins called Heaven Heaven. I have desired to go where springs not fail, to fields where flies no sharp and sided hail, and a few lilies blow. And I have asked to be where no storms come, where the green swell is in the havens dumb and out of the swing of the sea. He then said, Hail Mary, Mother of God, pray for me. The only thing I can find on his last meal is that it was from Pizza Hut and it cost $33, keeping it classy. That's gonna do it for Iowa. Much like the state itself, their death penalty cases are pretty unimpressive. A little messed up in some cases, but there's really not much to choose from. If you enjoyed this episode, or even if you were too busy playing your Game Boy to pay attention, tell a friend. Share my shit all over the internet. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. I'll be back next week with a controversial episode about why the death penalty should be abolished. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.